your boy race rage Jamaica Moana Understanding is so intimate Couldn't see but now you're fixing it Performativity, your time to quit The feeling's real, it makes it adequate If it's genuine, immaculate I've been over here and I've been doing all of that All these people say they're for it but I tell them go relax It's happy at the front but I be pushing to the back They be always taking from us like I'm dealing with my tax How you over here and say you on the same page? Never are committed, never stay engaged Always do the most, keeping us in rage Why ain't working with Mini on Project Race Rage? We don't want no lukewarm allies We want anaconflex Comrades come to do the work that we want to our complex Liberation bound up, no agenda here Subconscious, respecting our autonomy Our sovereignty and compass To the what? To the work To the labor Labor It's not my job to the wojo To the work To the labor Labor I don't educate ones in that To the work To the labor Labor To the work To the work To the labor To the work To the work To the labor To the work To the work To the labor To the what? To the labor To the labor 
Jamaica Moana and do the labour. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with Jonathan Holmesy about Midsummer production and She Would Stand Like This. And Dan Hall joins us from London about his podcast in the key of Q. But first, our interview with Race Rage. Thank you so much for having me. I absolutely love Do the Labour. Tell us about the activist issues it explores. Yeah, um, so Do the Labour sort of came from a moment of being really frustrated when sort of the Black Lives Matter movement that was happening sort of in the US and here locally kind of really kicked off. Um, and there was a lot of people, I feel like sort of doing this sort of like clicktivism, um, kind of performative actions, trying, you know, with good intentions, trying to support marginalised communities, um, you know, particularly black communities and and queer, trans, people of colour, um, BIPOC communities, um, but kind of just doing these things that while also, while not really achieving anything were often quite harmful, like the posting a black square um, <laughs> for Black Lives Matter, which ended up like silencing the voices of black people rather than achieving anything and, or, you know, just sharing articles without actually kind of doing any of the actual work needed to support change. And often kind of responding to, you know, marginalised people bringing this stuff up with tone policing and white fragility and defensiveness. Um, so that's sort of the the context that I wrote that track in. And, yeah, it was really just kind of speaking to the experience of the frustrations that the queer and trans people of colour kind of experience with, you know, within our community Um being sort of the more marginalised people that are constantly sort of used or fetishised to be representative without people actually taking the time to fully understand how to how to show meaningful solidarity so yeah it's kind of a little bit of a little bit of an anthem saying (laughs) you know um it's it's time for people to step up if they want to call themselves allies to to queer black um trans um BIPOC people and yeah you know when we there's there's often that expectation that we'll just kind of educate people and sort of lead them by the hand really patiently and perpetually to kind of understand us and see us as full humans and make any effort to kind of understand our experiences and yeah it's kind of saying like you know what um a lot of us are really done with putting in all that that mental and emotional labour that that takes and people have done this work over and over and there's so many resource out, resources out there to educate yourself. So jump out of my comment threads and jump onto Google and do the work. Yeah. 3CR. I'm such a huge fan of Jamaica Moana. Um, 
when I was first kind of writing um, the track, I already had in mind that I really wanted to have like a ballroom Vogue sort of vibe. And I know that she's just like such a queen in so many arenas. Um, She's really involved in that scene and has such an incredible um, flow and with her with her rapping and stuff so I I just knew sort of before it was even fully fleshed out that I really needed to have her on board to kind of fulfill the vision and and yeah it was it was a really great experience kind of bringing her talents um bringing her talents on board and and putting it all together. So tell us about how the mechanics of you two worked on the track together. It was kind of a little bit of a spanner thrown in the works thanks to COVID um yeah I kind of sort of I, I don't I don't really do um, any beat production or anything like that. That's not my skill arena. Um, so I pretty much kind of had the flow in my head and the melody that I sort of wanted and went about writing a couple of drafts um, and then, yeah, invited her to just kind of write whatever felt, whatever felt true to her on the same sort of topic and we put it together. Um, and yeah, I managed to fly her down, um, to record in the middle of two lockdowns. We had like a really tiny couple of day period that we were like, get down here. Like it's going to work this time. So yeah, it was kind of a a bit of a, a funny, um, way of collaborating. It's not, not really something I've done before having to work around so many lockdowns and stuff, but was so glad to just, just get it all, get it all together. Um, and yeah be able to finally sort of share our hard work with the public. I love how Do The Labour talks about sovereignty. Tell us about the messages that you really want to convey in relation to sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, um, as both First Nations people, Jamaica Moan is um, a First Nations person as well, and we both kind of really wanted to to centre that in the track and speak a bit about, you know, like, here in in so-called Australia, First Nations people have never ceded sovereignty and have never ceded their connection to, you know, our connection to land and culture. Um, and, you know, this is the only colonised land without a treaty that's an illegal occupation and, and there was there was so, sort of no right um, for, for colonisers to, to invade this land and do all the things that they've done here. So I think, you know, when we're talking about marginalised groups, especially within, you know, the sort of queer and trans community, we really need to centre First Nations voices and respect that that connection um, first and foremost. And, yeah, the fact that no kind of, there can't be any sort of meaningful reconciliation or kind of healing of wounds and stuff until that work is done and, and First Nations people have, you know, have their um sovereignty respected and yeah acknowledged and and that needs to be in the forefront of everyone's mind so we really wanted to kind of mention that in the track too and it's so good that you're mentioning it today this week of invasion day which you know just just you know exemplifies just shows you know the the horrific unfinished business in this country yeah it's it's such a hard time of year for so many um and it just feels like a lot of the time we're kind of banging our heads against a brick wall, having the same conversation every single year. I mean, it's like 2022. This has been going on since the 1940s, this conversation, um, since it was declared, um, you know, a day of mourning and still we're seeing just this really ignorant celebration of, of genocide and invasion and it's just really, really heartless that people are still continuing to celebrate that at this point. So yeah, I think I think it's really 
yeah, it's really nice to be able to talk about this given the context of the fact that we're recording this the day before, the day before Invasion Day and, and all the gross white supremacist patriotism kind of has a big outbreak. <laughs> and, of course, we need a treaty. Like, we need to change the date, but we also need a treaty to give the changing of the date some, some substance and true significance and resolution. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Uncle Robbie Thorpe um, often talks about this when he says, you know, like there can, people often say, oh, well, what date would be good? Like what, if we change it, what date would we change it to? And yeah, Uncle Robbie Thorpe often says like, well, there is no day to celebrate until there's a treaty um, because you can't, you can't move forward to celebrating as a whole community until the hurt's been acknowledged. And we, you know, we've seen that in in other nations that have kind of gone through this process, like in South Africa, there was a there was a truth and accountability process um, before kind of moving on to to looking at being able to to have the treaty and then have some form of reconciliation after. So there really is no date that's appropriate to celebrate while we're still, you know, one of the only colonized. I'm pretty sure the only colonized land in the world. Um, that still doesn't have a treaty with its First Nations people. Your upcoming EP is called Black Medusa. I love the title. Tell us a bit more about why you chose it. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm glad you like it. Um, yeah, Black, the the kind of mythology of Medusa's always sort of really resonated with me. And one of the tracks off that album, Divine Melanin, um, I sort of wrote, that was based on a quote from a crime think poster that had a picture of Medusa on it that talked about rejecting um, beauty norms and beauty standards. And so I wrote that track kind of looking at this image of Medusa and being really impacted it by it with sort of the idea of of subverting subverting the male gaze and subverting the white gaze. And I feel like the idea of Medusa with with her own really powerful gaze kind of does that. And then another track I wrote um, is called Black Medusa. That's the the title track that I then thought, actually, this works for the whole record. Um, and it kind of was written from the perspective of an experience of harm, an experience of violation of microaggressions, of somebody really intruding on my space and, and fucking with my hair. And as a black person, that's just like something that, that is really vitriolic when that happens. Um, and I kind of wanted to write about it, but I didn't want to write about it and give that person strength in the experience. So I thought, okay, I feel like I'm still really impacted by this experience. So how can I write about this and sort of re-empower myself? And I sort of visualized myself as Medusa having, you know, this inbuilt um, protection system of the snakes that that stop people kind of intruding on her space and her body. And yeah, so I thought of this this idea of, of a black Medusa that embodies the strength that so many black folk kind of muster of self-protection against like constant intrusions and violations. And so, yeah, this record as a whole kind of speaks of pathways to healing from trauma. And I feel like that is sort of, you know, having something that you can visualize of what gives you strength is sometimes, can sometimes be that pathway or, you know, whether it's rage or resistance or rest or unlearning stuff that's really toxic that you've taken on yeah so I thought it kind of works for the whole record so I sort of expanded that idea out a bit you know the songwriting on Black Black Medusa sounds absolutely amazing you sound like a really talented and really original songwriter oh thank you (laughs) when's it coming out 
um feb 11 so really really soon i feel like i've been working on it for for ages and also for a really short time <laughs> um but yeah feb 11 it's gonna drop um and we're gonna do like a little live stream listening party online um on feb 13th about seven o'clock and just yeah because of covid i i can't really have a sort of I feel like it's not super responsible to have like an in-person kind of launch at the moment. And also so many of my collaborators, there's been so many collaborators on this record um, and a couple of them are interstate, um, a couple of them are overseas. So I thought it'd be really nice just to have people be able to kind of jump on the live and and maybe talk a little bit about about the experience of working on these tracks together because it's been the accumulation of so much work from so many people. Yeah, so keep an eye out for that on Feb 13 on um, my live on Insta. Do tell about these other collaborators. They sound fascinating. Yeah, so uh, it's it's just been such an awesome opportunity because um, I got a, a grant from, from Flash Forward Melbourne to kind of be able to put a bunch of resources into creating my first record, which I would never have expected. So um, two of the collaborators that I was super excited about working with is Rebel Diaz, um, who were just like my absolute like I've completely fanboyed out over them. <laughs> um, just exactly where I you know would really like my career to be in terms of having an incredible political message and still doing like heaps of work with community and stuff. So I I shot my shot and hit them up and they were like yeah super on board and we wrote a track together called Cop Watch, um, which is kind of about you know, the difference that we can make in our communities by looking out for each other and exercising our rights to record and monitor police brutality and hold cops to accountability when we see this stuff happening in our own communities. So that was a a, a really amazing um, part of the album. And also I, I got a bunch of my friends to be on it, which was really, really cool, whose work I, I really love. Um, Katie Spit, who's who's my best friend, um, and we've collaborated quite a bit on her kind of um, solo pop project stuff um and sasshound who's an amazing wiradjuri um artist and and um performer from um up in sydney and also various asses who um kind of was the main producer that i worked with throughout who's yeah just so talented like yeah a whole bunch of really really cool queers and and um local and and also yeah Rebel Diaz from from over in the states. So it's just been it's been so cool getting to work with all these people and bring all their talents on board. And it's so timely, you know, in relation to calling out police issues. Considering that this week in Melbourne, over a hundred queer activists signed a letter requesting that the police, uh, as an organisation, not have any role in this year's Midsummer Pride March. Absolutely. I mean, it was also just so disappointing to hear that they had a presence at Carnival too, as well as you know, the Australian Defence Force, as well as Serco, who run, you know, all the detention centres that are currently holding so many refugees. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, as a, as a queer person, as a black person, um, getting the opportunity to speak out against against police is, is so important to me. So, yeah, I really wanted to, to bring that onto this record too, because it's kind of a theme that comes up in a lot of, a lot of my um, tracks. <laughs> I can't wait to hear Black Medusa. I absolutely love Do the Labour Race Rage. Thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR today. It's been a real honour and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. 
I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Jaden Blackamore and Rise Again, 
while Jonathan Holmes is the choreographer of Antipodes Theatre production, and she would stand like this, playing at Melbourne's Midsummer Festival. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I get to talk to you so much, I feel a bit spoiled. It is so exciting hearing about all the great things you're up to. You're choreographing and she would stand like this. Tell us all about it. I don't want to give too much away, but it's basically based on the original Greek tragedy. Um, I, it's so bad because I'm not a theatre person, James. So I think it's Euripides, the Trojan women. I think I've said that correctly, but with my American vowels, um, I always tend to mess everything up. Um, Antipodes Theatre Company um, with a dear, now a dear friend of mine, um, Brandon Pape, who's originally from the United States, kind of headhunted a whole bunch of us to get a really diverse team of queer people of color to work this work. It's originally a play by Harrison David River, who's also a playwright from the United States. And they took the Trojan Women play and kind of set it into this timeless era, which I would say is 80s because it does reference the HIV epidemic, but we never mention the actual disease. And I think because of the, the pandemic we're in right now, I think it's great to leave the disease unnamed so the audience can kind of decide how they kind of see it in their perspective. But instead of going through the story of the Trojan women, it's actually going through the story of a, a house. And I know you have my dear friend, um, Kiki Devine from House of Divine last month on your radio. And... Kiki was talking about what a Vogue house is, and a Vogue house is a chosen family in ballroom culture. So it's kind of fusing the narrative of the Greek tragedy with kind of the context of the AIDS epidemic and also mixing in um, ballroom culture. And myself and Kiki Devine, who made the opening um, section for the work, because there is a Vogue section. I'm not a Vogue dancer by trade. I'm a whacker, but I am a queer performer of color, and I also am a guest in ballroom culture, so I feel very privileged to work with Kiki, Ella Alexander from House of Alexander, and all these amazing queer people of color on a work that does feel quite timeless and references kind of what we're going with now in COVID, the tragedies of the past, and also, of course, of our elders of the AIDS epidemic, which we should never forget. It's so historical, but it's so modern. What a beautiful juxtaposition. Yeah, it's really quite interesting. We've been having this kind of push and pull with the production team and mainly me because I'm such a Capricorn, James, as you know, so I can get very opinionated. So, but a lot of that pull of to get queers to connect to it now and how do we find honoring the the epidemic of our of our four, I don't want to say forefathers, it sounds so binary, but four people, is that a right term? A less binary term for forefathers and foremothers? Um while kind of honoring what is going on right now. So there is this push and pull of, is it 80s? Is it 90s? Is it now? And I think Stev's music, Stev, who you would know from the Umami parties, has really made some music that kind of includes kind of tropes of Greek tragedy while including what we know from Melbourne music, which I call pseudo-Berlin music, right? It's got that kind of heavy techno feel, the bass that shakes the room. So the music and the aesthetic isn't necessarily 80s, but I think the values around chosen family and how we pull up for each other in parts of times of emergency when we don't have our biological family, I think are so relevant right now. Well, so relevant to the pandemic, but also so relevant to the history of queer people and queer people of colour and suppression and oppression and having to unite as a family to kind of, you know, achieve our rights and advance our rights. Yeah, I think it's so imperative. Um, even just advancing like casting, I think Reese, who was the casting consultant on this, I've never been in a casting that has been so refreshing, and I felt so safe of us discussing how do we negotiate um, 
plays that have a lot of um, gender diverse people and ethnically diverse people, particularly when we bring plays from the United States that are our African-American and Latinx focused. And a lot of the actors um, or performers rather in this work are a Pacifica and Asian heritage. And how do we kind of, and Harris has been quite amazing at this, letting us, I don't want to say indigenize the script, um, especially with the week we have this week with Invasion Day, but I think kind of understanding that the lateral connections of people of color and understanding that we can't just be doing a black and Latinx play outright verbatim because that's not our culture here in the cast. Um, and particularly because we have Kiki Temple, who is an amazing Pacifica performer, um, and Ella, who is the consultant from House of Alexander in Mean Jin, Brisbane, um, has really found a way line by line to really connect the play to here and now on our stolen land of a wandering country, which I find really refreshing. As you know, James, we've all been to musicals and they say all the American references and you're kind of laughing, but you realize you're not in on the joke. And I think what Antipodes has done is, is brought a serious play, but all the little dark humor that's in it, they've made it so people of color here, particularly in our diasporas in the Asian and Pacifica areas can really connect to the script and not feel so disjointed from it. Yeah, it sounds like it's really paying a genuine tribute and genuine respect towards the time and place that it's in. And I think it's because we don't want it to be... Marco's done a great effort where everyone's speaking in their natural voice. They're not speaking as Americans, even though the play is American. So finding a way to, again, honor the script with respect to the playwright, but also make the script their own and let them be themselves, which I think makes it, it does, for me, it like, it feels the energy of an AIDS epidemic work, but the the way we're seeing it is very present. The the colors, even though there are some shoulder pads, I don't want to give too much away. We do get a little bit of 80 shoulder pads, which I love. You know, I love a good shoulder, James. Um, but there is this really nice push and pull of honoring the 80s, but also finding a way to deconstruct it so the audiences feel relevant. I think with these plays that are quite heavy, particularly by the AIDS epidemic and what we have going on right now, it's hard to be an audience member and sit there and feel heavy in the play. You know what I mean, James? So how do we, as myself as a choreographer and us as a cast, find a way to discuss those heavy things, but not having the audience feel heavy when they leave the space? Um and I think it's and I it's that really daggy thing. I love the word daggy, even though I'm American. But um, that thing where the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. We've really tried to um, let me go back a step. Sorry, James. The sum greater whole in its parts, meaning the audience is going to come to their own conclusions because each of us have our own lived experience. Um, I think someone that maybe might be HIV positive or someone that is a queer elder that has lived through the epidemic will have a different perspective than a Gen Z person who comes because they see, they hear there's some really cool voguing and they want to come watch. I think there's interesting ways where the audience can really make their own conclusions because we've made it specific enough, but also vague enough so people could come in with their own lived experience and they can learn something from it as well. So it sounds like you really don't want to kind of like guide the audience too much. You really want the audience to be kind of, you know, creative with their interpretation to kind of dig deep into their own kind of, you know, perhaps personal perspectives and 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 see what comes up for them. I think it's because it's about agency. I think anything that's taught us this decade from the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement that we started at the, you know, the end of the last decade is around agency. So if our, if our cast is having agency and we're creating a safe space, we need to give that to the audience as well, especially when we have more heavy topics. Um, but I know for me, I 
and you know me, James, outside of this theater context, I do make pretty funny and silly work because right now we're going through a pretty intense decade. We need some work that uplifts us. Not saying that every work is going to be a Tony Robbins or Brene Brown speech, but um, we have to find a way to uplift our audiences even when the material is, is quite weighted. Um, and I think that's our responsibility as artists in this decade right now. So tell us about the impact working on this production is having on you. Like, it sounds like it's really, it's really making you think and it's really making you dig deep. It must be incredibly exciting for you as an artist to be going through that. I think for me, it's like, it's really having the younger cast members. We have some cast members that have actually came on, came in from Queensland, um, who've just moved here just for the production. And being around these younger performers, um, Mickey Devine, who plays the role of Grace, has never acted in their life and has just impressed me from top to bottom, how they just really embody the character. They get off script. So really seeing these emerging artists or some that are maybe come from the musical theater world who haven't got to do a more serious work. Um, I think of Selena Yuen, who's a dear friend of mine, who is a queer person of color um, from, from Mackay, who's playing the role of Cassandra. And she usually gets to sing. She does a lot of kids shows. So getting to see these people who usually do more, um, light roles or might be doing more musical roles or come in as a professional dancer all come in as serious actors makes me really excited so i'm tapping the table james because i got so excited so i think it's for them coming with many hats and getting to nurture them and um find agency within that as you know james i'm all about improvising because every choice you make is a perfect choice on stage and making you feel good and making the audience kind of feel something in return so i really enjoy guiding the performers having agency over their own bodies and I hope that agency applies into their personal lives in the future. Yeah, it sounds like you're being a real mentor and it sounds like you're getting an enormous amount out of out of out of having that role. It sounds like you're really loving nurturing people. And I think that's well we need to nurture each other, James. I think all of us queer people we need nurturing right now. Um I know we'll probably any interviews we say, oh this is being a hard time. This is a hard time. So I don't need to kind of I don't want to say kick a dead horse, whatever that analogy is about repetition, but we do need support and nurturing. And I think we need works that provide us a place to interrogate and reflect, but don't kind of give us the burden. I think a lot of us as um, performers of color, we tend to project our anger onto the audience. Um, And that's something like we don't, especially my fellow you know, community members of color um, in the queer community. I don't want to project my anger onto them, but we need to find a way to have a discussion around the anger, the sadness, the complexity, and, you know, how we are surviving and thriving and also how we discuss chosen family. Because for me, um, in my own lived experience, I had great parents, but I'm estranged from my extended family, nothing to my own doing. So my queer chosen family is my family. And so I'm not going to say that the cast is like a family, but we do work in a way that is quite familial. So we can actually work together safely to have, you know, I'd say thick discussions because you can kind of feel in the air in certain parts of the script. I don't want to give the plot away, but you can feel it. You can feel in the space. And then we give little moments of joy and humor to kind of just cut it up, you know, like, right, James, it's like food. You got to digest it. And sometimes we need a slice of lemon, a bit of cucumber, just to kind of break up what's going on. But I think if you are not a theater person and want to see some theater and she would say like this, I think is the work for you. There's a lot of dancing. There's a lot of beautiful visual elements that Corinne has been working on Corinne Lachey and I'm loving and Nassau has been doing the most amazing makeup and wigs. Don't want to give it away. 
Um, but again, if you watch Pose on on your telly and you go, oh, this is really cool. I want to know more. This is the kind of work to get you in and to have some serious discussions around ballroom culture and safety for us as queer people of color. It sounds absolutely riveting. Jonathan Holmes, he give us the details for And She Would Stand Like This as part of our extraordinary Midsummer Festival here in Melbourne. Yes, it is. Sorry I interrupted you. I got a bit excited, James. Um, it's from the 3rd to the 12th of February. Um, it's at Meat Market, which is um, on 2 Reckon Street in North Melbourne. If you want to book, um, you can book online via antipodestheatre.com or via the Midsummer page. Just to let anyone know, um, the Auslan Interpreter Performance is on the 11th for any friends that are hard of hearing. And we have an audio-described performance and tactile tour on the matinee on the 12th. Tickets are $40 and $30 for concession. And there is a preview as well, which is $30. And I can't wait to see you there. Oh, it sounds absolutely exciting. I'm really, really um, impressed with the energy of it all and the creativity. Jonathan Holmes, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. And thank you so much for having me. I feel I should just move in at this rate, James. Let's get comfortable. <laughs> it's been great. Cheers. All the best. Come on, baby. Come on, give me. 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 Come on, give me.
can't. Come on. Jane Sibri there, an angel stepped down and slowly looked around, while In the Key of Q is a podcast produced in London that features interviews and music from queer artists around the world. And I spoke with its producer, Dan Hall. So yeah, In the Key of Q is my podcast series, which grew out really of me looking for a podcast that that could introduce me to queer music, and I didn't quite find what I was looking for. So instead of doing the classic POM thing of just whining about it, I thought I'd sit down and, and just make one myself. And it's so exciting because you have queer artists from all around the world. What a smorgasbord. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of us are guilty of. Whenever I would load up Spotify, I'd always end up listening to the same artists that I'd been listening to for years and years and the same albums. And I'd not really been exploring new music. And by doing this podcast, it's really forced me to explore completely new music that I otherwise, I think, would have missed. And as you said, they're artists from all over the world. And it's just been amazing listening to them and and realising how varied the queer musical community is. Absolutely. There is so much out there. There are so many queer artists doing independent stuff. And you're providing a platform for them. They must love that. must be so empowering. Well, do you know what they're doing for me? They're providing me with music. And I really love music. And music has always been a place of refuge and real pleasure for me. So I think it's a mutually beneficial agreement. Tell us a bit about yourself, you know, and your love of music. I've always loved music. Like, I grew up in a household with lots and lots of music playing. Things like Barbara Streisand and uh, my brother, who's five years older than me, was always playing stuff like Depeche Mode and Soft Cell So music was very much always around, and that's gone on into my adulthood. I can't really produce music that well, but I just love it. And music is one of those things, I think, that it just somehow gets under the skin. There's something about it that it, it plugs into the emotions. And so music is because it's sort of had always this passion within inside of me, I've always wanted to seek out more and seek out more and more good music. And the podcast was really a way of, of doing that. 
because I certainly found with queer artists, even though we have these amazing digital spaces, there weren't really spaces for them to to be heard and to talk about themselves as well as their music. It still seemed to be that the, the queer voices were being silenced. Yeah, absolutely. It's an industry that has oppressed queer people where, you know, even big stars had to, like, you know, be in the closet, basically. And we're not far from that era. You know, it's not far gone, is it? No, absolutely not. And we talk about uh, sort of queer music icons, and uh, I won't mention any names because it's not really fair, but most of them aren't queer icons to me because they waited until they got their success and then they came out. You know, the queer icons to me are those who had the courage to be out at a time, especially when it was difficult, when, frankly, they could have done with the publicity of pretending to be straight. So people like Boy George, people like Mark Almonds from Soft Cell, people like uh, Andy Bell from Erasure, these were people who were out in the 80s when it was you know, being an out gay man was not a cool thing. And so to me, they're, they're our real heroes. Absolutely. And I guess, you know, coming out for a lot of, you know, queer artists that we don't know of, it killed their careers and we've never heard of them. Completely. And it's it's just ridiculous to me. That whole thing is a bit like with gay actors. People say, oh, you know, this queer actor can't come out because then he won't be able to play straight parts and straight audiences won't want to watch him because he's now gay and, and they won't be able to have sex with him. And I've never understood that because it's like, Darling, you were never going to have sex with him anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many pink ceilings that need to be shattered. It totally. is so wonderful that you're actually providing a forum for that. There's a real kind of, you know, political undertone to in the key of Q just by existing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting for me, the the opening blurb that I give to each episode kind of changes every few episodes as I slightly adapted. And originally it was much, much more political because it was a little bit more honest about the show's origins in that I think in terms of mental health and queer identity, it's really important for us to hear ourselves reflected back in our music. And that just wasn't happening. It, it wasn't happening much in the 80s. And certainly living now, it's still kind of quite difficult to find queer artists. You have to find the right playlists and because we live in a heteronormative world, we can't sort of by default just accidentally stumble on this music. And so, yeah, it's. I think that we are still really, really silenced, and I hope that the podcast does really start to go some way of redressing that. So in that way, absolutely, yes, it is political. You must see a real emergence in some of the artists after they come, come on their show. You know, you've given them a platform, but you've also given them that chance to publicly express their story. You must see some beautiful growth after you've done the interviews and, and seen their work emerge. Do you know what? There's two spaces where there is genuine a lot of pleasure. The first one is how some artists are really surprised that they're asked to be on the show in the first place. And I feel like saying to them, do you even hear your music? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's why you've been asked to come on, because you make great music. So that's lovely to be able to say to somebody, you are a value, your voice is a value. Um, because so often people don't think it is. And to me, the other great thing about the podcast in terms of legacy is how artists who didn't know each other will connect up through having been guests on the show. So that's really nice. I notice them talking to each other on Twitter and, and and other social media spaces. And so that's I get a real buzz out of that. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so you're actually generating some really wonderful collaborations, perhaps. 
we certainly need some in the key of Q musical babies, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's so exciting. Tell us about some of the artists that you've had on the show. Oh, gosh, we've had over 50 now. Um, But there have been some wonderful ones. I mean, I'm always going to be super grateful to Tom Goss, who is an American artist who recorded the pilot episode for us. So this is an episode that was never even planned to be released. And it was sort of my rehearsal recording and editing so I could trial out all the processes so it was he'll I'll always be very very grateful to him you know he, also his bear song I think is very very sexy and uh <laughs> I'm grateful to him for that as well yeah I was just saying there's been all sorts of wonderful artists though like in genres that I wasn't even that aware of so things like the ism doing his amazing very very personal raps You've got Brendan McLean, Australia's own Brendan McLean, who was a wonderful guest to have on. And he and he's got some brilliant music. I mean, goodness, stupid, House of Air, these great, great songs. So yeah, so many good artists. And and even the ones we've got now coming on for season two, people like Q Boy, who is a British rapper. Uh just such talented people. Of course you are in London. Uh tell us about what's happening with the pandemic there. Well, it seems that everyone's getting a little bit bored of it. And I think a lot of people have had the disease or uh, have had vaccinated or have been vaccinated. And people who haven't been vaccinated are generally considered to be arseholes and not really invited out to things. Uh, So it kind of feels like things are really starting to relax a lot more here now. In fact, I think all our restrictions officially end this coming Thursday. Um, But, you know, I'm aware that it's not not quite that uh that easy my my partner works in healthcare and so uh there's always a little bit of realism about it all but it does feel like we're starting to come to the end of it now i think almost everybody has either been infected or and had a shit time or, or has now had their jabs because you just get the general feeling in london that people are just bored of it now and they want to go to their theaters again and london is about theaters and about pubs and bars and it just feels like we need that again What's your take on the parties that happened at Downing Street? Oh, my God. Sack the bastard. Like, they're all gum. I can't stand that hypocrisy. I really, really can't. It's like, how dare you call yourselves leaders? Just sack them. Sack them. Awful people. There. That was pretty pretty down the line. I just think, how can you be so shit at your job? Like, literally. And that argument that my prime minister gave, a week or so ago of well you know no one told me that it was a party there's a trestle table some booze uh lots of people and some nibbles and you you don't know it's a party you know you're either a liar or you're thick as shit either which way you shouldn't be running my country of course the uk is renowned for its great political music that comes out of times of crisis and times of you know political rubbish uh, I, I I wonder what's going to come out, you know, from 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 this era. What treasures you, know, you will have for the world over there? Do you know what? That is a really really good point because in the early eighties and mid eighties, as as Thatcherism really started to take hold, there was some amazing political music from people like Billy Bragg, and and people like Fun Boy Three, and in fact the whole two tone movement. Some great great music, and it will be interesting to see. You're absolutely right about what's going to come out of the music scene in the next couple of years, not just because of the pandemic, but I think 
there's been you know half a decade or more now of general disillusionment in the quality of politicians and whenever there's disillusionment there's always good music down the line i mean hopefully on in the key of q we'll uh, we'll guess some of those people in the future fantastic of course you're coming back with season two in early march how exciting i know it's really if you'd have said to me a year plus ago that i'd be prepping season two now i would i would not have believed you i really wouldn't have done and, and it just feels so exciting to be getting so many brilliant artists you know i've already mentioned q boy but we've got brandon james grin on who is a tony award winner coming up in season two there's a natural a wonderful artist from the united states and dead method a, a brilliant pop singer from cardiff and wales the, just these each you know I, I always worry that i'm going to run out of artists to interview and i always end up with the same problem and that is there's just too many to fit in for the number of episodes so yeah season two i'm really excited at and and i've got almost 13 episodes made and in the bag so uh they're good ones i promise you Fantastic. Can't wait to hear them. Dan Hall from In the Key of Q. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
And that was Depeche Mode with Love in Itself. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. and not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Sovereignty was never ceded.